and he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here, and they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, or unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come out again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Uh, last week we uh, studied verses 12 through 18 of chapter 3, which concludes that chapter. Um, and within our study of this portion of this narrative, we considered three truths from these verses. And I want to just uh, review them again uh, briefly here. First of all, love's or redemption's opposition in verse 12. In verse 12 of chapter 3, we read, Now it is true that I am near kinsmen, howbeit there's a kinsman nearer than I. Ruth had a kinsman redeemer who at that time in which Boaz makes a statement was closer to her than was Boaz through Naomi's family or Elimelech's family despite Ruth's ignorance of his existence. Because it's quite obvious that in, most, in all probability that neither Naomi nor Ruth, having been gone, Naomi had been gone for years, remember that. She's been in Moab for years. And so coming back out of Moab, it is, it is quite obvious that she was unaware of this kinsman, of his existence, or that he was still alive, or what have you. Whatever the reason, she was not aware uh, of him being present or in the picture, so to speak. And, and Ruth, obviously, if Naomi wasn't aware, then Ruth surely would not have been aware. Now, do we know this for certain? No, we don't. But all, by all indication in the text and all that's led up to this point, Naomi, of course, wants Boaz has extended grace to Ruth. Naomi now is pointing Boaz or pointing Ruth to Boaz in his direction. And so obviously according to the the law, Levitical law, and as well just the culture of the day due to the word of God and the laws that were established by the Lord, we would uh, we would see that uh Naomi would have known that the proper way for this to to transpire would be that for, there would that uh, Ruth would go first to the nearest kinsman and that anything pertaining to Elimelech would have to go through that nearest kinsman before it would go to Boaz if he was not the nearest kinsman, which obviously, obviously by his own confession, we find that he was not. Now, again, I want to make a note of something here because it is important to remind you of this. I have attempted to faithfully work through this narrative up to this point as explaining exactly what it is, a historical narrative. This is an actual account, and, it, and the significance of this account of Ruth is that it gives us the lineage partially, uh, the lineage of David, which ultimately is the lineage of Christ. And we see that Ruth the Moabitess is part of the family of David, part of the family of Christ, of course, because uh, as we'll see in a moment with the birth, birthing of the son of, of uh, both uh, Boaz and Ruth. And so there's a significance to this book of Ruth, this historical narrative, and God's eternal redemptive purpose because it's through this process, through this lineage, that the Messiah is born, that Jesus is born. And so we don't want to ever uh, dismiss that or push that aside. This is the bigger picture. This is the truth of why this book is even existent in, this, in, in the canon of Scripture. At the same time, I do want to point out to you and cause you to reflect upon the parallels that we find present 
within the book. How that there are things that relate as well to us in the sense that we can, or I should say that we can relate to these things in our own redemption. Because as I've told you before, I've titled this whole series through the book of Ruth of love's redemption story, redemptive, redemption's love story. And how, of course, we see redemption being the theme here throughout the book. And we see all that led up to this, up to this point, up to the time in which Ruth would be redeemed. And there's many things that take place. And some of them are simply historical record and historical significance. While there are are overarching uh, truths throughout the account that also we can relate to these things and and consider the truth of how in our redemption, how Christ and what our, our kinsman, our near kinsman has done on our behalf and his sacrifice and his grace and his goodness and his love and all that pertains therein. And so, again, I, I want us to always be careful, always in every passage of Scripture, to be careful that we never, ever view it in a spiritualized sense, as though we're taking something of historical or literal value and, and benefit spiritually and attempt to try to fit it into some narrative that we create or some, some points that we want to make. And so I want to always guard against that. And so I've tried to be careful from the onset of this study to to explain that to you, to say, look, this is a historical narrative. It, it has great significance in God's eternal redemptive purpose in that Christ came through the lineage of, of Boaz and Ruth, and so that has tremendous significance. And obviously, as well, there are these parallels. And so I want us to consider some of these things again tonight, uh, having said that. First of all, we saw uh, this, re- this opposition in verse 12. And that is that Ruth had a kinsman redeemer who was that, at that time was closer to her than was Boaz. It was one who could redeem, or one in line to redeem, if you will, who was closer than Boaz, even though she was ignorant of his existence. And I told you before that obviously, um, prior to knowing Christ, there is one that is closer to us than our Lord is, obviously. In fact, the fact that we need Christ is evidence of this truth because we are separated from God. We are not in fellowship with God. We are not in a relationship with God as we are born in this sinful, wicked flesh in which we live. And so this, this, this kinsman that is closest to us than any other prior to redemption is the sinful, wicked flesh itself. And we find that it is something to, that we, and just it's interesting that, that men are born ignorant to the true condition of their own sinful flesh. However, the flesh, which is to say the sinful nature that we possess, is the true obstacle that must be dealt with if redemption is to be realized. I mean, what is the one thing that is the obstacle between sinful man and redemption? It's his own sinful flesh. This is the problem. This is the thing that stands between us and redemption, us and our Savior. It is the sin of man itself. And so although by indication, again, Naomi and Ruth were ignorant of the existence of this other kinsman, this one, as we'll refer to him, as Scripture says, but not only knew who he was, but also where to find him and how to deal with him. Second, last week we looked at love's or redemption's promise in verse 13. Let's just read that as well. Tarry this night, Boaz says, and it shall be in the morning that if he will perform it unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee. As the Lord liveth, lie down until the morning. Here we find that uh, Boaz makes a promise to Ruth. Boaz vows that he will personally deal with the other kinsmen. He's going to go to him. He's going to talk with him. He's going to take care of this whole situation. Boaz committed himself to do what Ruth was incapable of doing. Again, by all indication, Ruth does not even know who this man is, and Boaz never names him in the text, at least. He never gives a name out. We never find who this other kinsman is by name. But yet, 
he says to Naomi, I, or to Ruth, I'm going to take care of this, I'm going to deal with him. And, and the truth of the matter is, again, to remind you that even when we were ignorant of the true presence and problem of our flesh, just how sinful and wicked we truly are, it, it's the Lord and the Lord alone who knows how to get to the prob- bottom of the problem and truly deal with it. Think of it like this, if you will. In Jeremiah, we're, we're, if you recall, we're told in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? What's the next verse say? I, the Lord, search the heart and try the reins. There's the problem. The heart, the flesh of man, the mind of man. Flesh not meaning this body necessarily, though it's, it's under the curse of sin as well, we know. But the reason it's under the curse of sin is because of the sinful nature of this flesh, the mind or the heart of man. And here's the thing. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. What's the next word? Who? Who? Who can know it? Who can know the deceitfulness of the heart? You know why you can't know the deceitfulness of your own heart? Because it deceives you. (laughs) You can't even know how deceitful your heart truly is because it deceives you from believing it's as deceitful as it is. The point of the matter is, this is the problem. This is the obstacle. This is that which stands between us and our Lord. The sin, the sin nature, the heart, the sinful heart and and deceitful heart of man. And so... Here we are, incapable of dealing with this problem. But the Lord says, oh, who, who can know it? I, the Lord. Oh, I, I search the heart. I try the reins. I know. I know what's in man. I know what the problem is. And when we are incapable of dealing with the problem, when we are ignorant of the problem, listen, before you were redeemed, you may have known that you weren't perfect, but, but you really didn't know that you were truly a sinner. And here's what I mean by that. You knew you sinned and you knew you were wrong, but you could always point to somebody else who was far worse than you were, couldn't you? Oh, at least I'm not like that, right? I may, I may not do everything right, but I'm not like this. The point is, we are sinful and we don't even understand how sinful we are. And we're ignorant of our own sin. We're ignorant, truly we're ignorant of our own sin in this regard as well. People will begin to point and say, well, I, I've done this or I've done that and that's not right and this isn't right. Or I've not done things I should do. Something to understand that their very existence is an offense to a holy God because they are born in rejection of God's love and his provision in Jesus Christ. Why do men perish? Oh, murderers, they all go to hell because they murder people. No. Is that why a murderer perish? Does a murderer perish because he's a murderer? No. Well, the liars, they just, you know, they're, they're not honest and they, no. Does a thief, because he steals and takes from others, that which doesn't, no adulterer right no why do men perish one word unbelief unbelief is the problem and you know what you can't fix your unbelief you can stop doing things and you can start doing things but you cannot fix your problem of unbelief that is beyond your ability to fix it because you'll never even see it to be as bad as it is apart from god dealing with this and so we see this taking place here with ruth as well as we begin or third, we see love's or redemption's perseverance, verses 14 through 18. We won't read all of those tonight in chapter 3. We dealt with this last week, but just to mention quickly, Boaz not only promised Ruth that he would assure her redemption, and he did, by the way, remember, because he says, one way or another, I'm going to make certain you're redeemed. That's what he tells Ruth. He does. Now, did Boaz say, I'm going to redeem you at this point? No, actually, he doesn't say that, but he says, one way or another, you will be redeemed. Now, the historical narrative is that there's a kinsman that comes before Boaz in lineage that must be dealt with if this is going to be done honestly and correctly and appropriately according to the law. 
And so he had to go to this other kinsman. The point, though, is that Boaz says, if he will redeem you, then he will redeem you. And if not, then I will redeem you. But the point is, Ruth, don't worry. It's going to be taken care of. This matter will be resolved. And he lets her know that. And look at the perseverance here. We see in in this account that he gives Ruth a token of his love and commitment to her and her redemption in verse 15. He says, also he said to Ruth, bring the veil that thou hast upon thee and hold it. And when she held measured six measures of barley and laid it on her and she went into the city now again what we find is he says don't go empty handed to naomi and he says i'm going to load you up with this provision and blessing again remember something and this is not a covenant this was a promise or a, a a a it really is a promise that boaz makes to ruth it's not officially uh theologically referred to as a covenant in this respect but yet every covenant that God makes in the, in the scriptures, it always comes with a token or pledge of the covenant. And here you find Boaz promising Ruth, you will be redeemed. I will make certain of your redemption. That's basically what he tells her. And then he says, here, let me give you something to take home with you. And you can imagine all the way home again, as, as Ruth carries this barley home, she's reminded that Boaz is not a man who just speaks words to be heard but rather he is saying something to which he is committed to and he's giving her something to take back with her and take back to Naomi to say, look, I have something here from Boaz. This is, it, surely this was affirmation for Ruth that Boaz is going to do what he said he would do, that he's going to be faithful to that which he has declared. Again, just a side note here, but I say to you, in the new covenant, there is a token and a pledge. And what is that token and pledge? The Holy Spirit, the earnest of the inheritance. It's the Spirit of God who dwells in us. And listen, on our journey (laughs) to the Lord in this lifetime, it is surely a wonderful affirmation to have the presence of the Spirit of God dwelling within us to remind us that He who has redeemed us, He who has promised is faithful to do that which He has promised to do. So as we begin our study of this final chapter of the narrative of Ruth, chapter 4, we find that the emphasis of the entire writing is brought to the forefront. And the book ends with the fruit of this redemptive work performed by Boaz, with, of which Ruth was the recipient. Let's look at verse 5, and here we see where it's all coming to a head, if you will. The whole book is led up to these, these points in, these, in this chapter. Verse 5, Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of also of Ruth the Moabitess? the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. So here's, here's the crux of the matter. Yes, there's land to buy, there's property of Elimelech to be redeemed, and according to the law, we'll see in a moment how this was to, to transpire. But yet, he says to this one, and we're going to dig into this a little more in a moment, he says, listen, you need to understand something. Here, here's the caveat to this whole ordeal. When you buy this property, you also have to take Ruth. And the idea of that is take her to be your wife, take her to wed, or, or your family, what have you. But the point is, you have to take Ruth in. You become responsible for her. It's not just about buying this property. Then verse 13 we find where all this becomes fruitful. So Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. So you find the fruit of this whole account, that this redemption's love story, and you find where it's all coming to this head of Boaz redeeming Ruth and then taking her, uh, taking Ruth as his wife. And of course, then the Lord blesses them with a child. And then we know that through that lineage, Christ ultimately is born, which is the, the beauty of all of this. And there's much to be said about that as well. So while everything prior to this chapter 
is leading to the events which transpire within this chapter, redemption, and the fruitful relationship which will inevitably ensue or develop due to the work of redemption, we see that this is the highlight. This is the emphasis. This is the theme. And yet we find that in the midst of this, there is opposition and an obstacle that is present in which Boaz will deal with as we've seen in the previous verses. So with all that being said, let's begin our study of this final chapter within the biblical record and historical narrative of Ruth. Verses 1 and 2, let's read them again. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. So let's begin first by, or first by, by beginning to dissect this verse somewhat, this passage somewhat. In the beginning of verse 1, here's what we see. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there. Now, um, uh, Longay, a commentator, commented and said, this gate, or the gate, it is well known, was the place where judicial business was transacted and markets were held. So Boaz sat at the gate, and he, and he went, he left the threshing floor, of course. He left the place he was. He goes to the gate, and he sits himself there at the gate. And Boaz was committed, as we know, to deal with this matter on that very day. He was not going to let this day pass by without this having been resolved, Ruth's redemption having And he was not going to leave until this was settled. In verse 1, we go on to read, And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Boaz called this one out as he passed by, going about his daily routine or daily business. Look, this is, this is so, so important to recognize. Here this man is, obviously having no understanding recognition of all that's going on behind the scenes. Here Ruth and Boaz have this relationship that's already been established. She's not his wife, but Boaz has reached out to her in grace. This whole event has transpired, and this one is absolutely ignorant of everything. Doesn't know anything of what's going on whatsoever. And while he's going about his daily business, notice this. First of all, Boaz knew where this man would be. He knew where to find him. And so he sits at the gate. And as he's sitting at the gate, this one passes by. And he, this one that's passing by was not coming to meet with Boaz. The one that is passing by was going about doing whatever he planned to do for the day. And his whole day gets interrupted with this matter that Boaz brings to him. And begins to deal with him about this, this matter of this redemption that must be. It's interesting because Boaz, knowing where this one would be, he called this one out. Ho, such a one! <laughs> uh, just such a, a friendly greeting, isn't it? <laughs> to this one. And, and I'm reminded throughout this account again, as you look at the entire account of redemption and what takes place, how that God is faithful to call men out. I've often said to you, there's no man who's ever been redeemed in which God has not divinely intervened and interrupted that man's life. Men go about their daily business, go about their daily work. People, people pop into church. Now, church is not salvation by any means, but isn't it interesting 
that people show up, and, and at times people will come in and show up. And there's been multiple accounts across this nation, across the world where this has happened, where people step into a, a church building where church services are being held and don't even know why they've come. But here they are. They were going about their regular life, going about their daily routines, and all of a sudden it's like some reason I'm showing up here and I don't even know why. I don't mean outside of their control. I don't mean some mystical thing. I'm talking about God puts within them something, a desire, a need, an understanding that I need help beyond myself. I am, I've never been aware of this before, but all of a sudden I find myself in a situation in which I did not expect to find myself to be in. You know what that is? That's God divinely interrupting people's lives, divinely intervening. And here this man's going about. Notice this, this man, this, this one, walking through the gate, going by the gate, going, who knows what he was doing? He may have been going to glean from his field or to the threshing floor to gain what had been gleaned. Who, who knows? We don't know exactly, but this we do know. He was not going to meet Boaz, but Boaz was waiting for him to come by to call him out. And Boaz does exactly that. He calls him out. I told you last week, I made reference to Adam in the garden after he had sinned, if you recall, in Genesis 3, 7 through 10. Let me read that. The eyes of them both, Adam and Eve, were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Again, here Adam and Eve are in sin. They hear the voice of the Lord God. Why? Because they commune with God, fellowship with God in the garden. And all of a sudden, they are hiding from God because they are naked, because now they, it, all of a sudden, it, they, it, they understand, wait, we are not like we once were. We are in a mess. We are in sin. We have, we're guilty before God. And so they attempt to hide themselves from God. They've made themselves uh, coverings of, of fig leaves, of course, aprons to cover their nakedness because they're embarrassed and they're ashamed. And, and they realize that. And so what happens? God comes along in the garden and says, Adam, where art thou? And again, I said this to you so many times. It's not a logistical question. God knew exactly where Adam was. He wasn't saying, Adam, I hide and seek, Marco Polo, where are you? I can't find you. No, he is saying, look, Adam, you have sinned, and I'm calling you out. I am not going to allow you to continue as you are. I'm going to call you out. I'm going to confront you. You will stand before me. You will face me whether you want to or not. So aren't you glad that God didn't leave it up to Adam? By the way, side note here, in the Garden of Eden, there was the, the tree of life. Remember, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God commanded them not to eat. Then you had the tree of life. And the fact that God kicked them out of the garden is actually a very merciful act of God. And the reason why that's a merciful act, people say, oh, no, that's yeah, it was judgment. Yes, God was judging them. But even in his judgment, there was mercy that was present. And the reason why is because had they eaten of the tree of life in that condition, guess what they would have happened? They would have continued. They would have continued without any redemption. And that would have been their end state. Aren't you thankful God kicked them out? Aren't you thankful God guarded the way of the tree of life to preserve it, as the scripture says? Because in preserving the way of the tree of life, he then made provision for Adam and Eve. He clothed them with skins, and redemption was present because of God's faithfulness. Adam would have never gone to the Lord of his own accord. Never. You know what Adam would have continued to do? He would have continued to have hidden and continued to have sinned, without question. 
So he would have continued to hide, and he would have continued to sin. And so God was merciful in kicking them out, that he allowed them to live in his provision rather than to end up in eternal death, because that's really what would have resulted ultimately. So, Adam and Eve hid. Where are you, Adam? God calls him out. The Lord was not going to dismiss Adam's sin. Neither was he going to, d- to sweep his sin under the rug. The Lord would simply continue to speak with Adam in fellowship as though Adam had done nothing wrong. Rather, the Lord called Adam out where he was in his sinful condition. Here we find Boaz goes to the place where this one would be, and he knew he would come by. He knew he would be there. He knew he was going to be present. And, in, and he called him to come aside and sit down that Boaz then might confront him concerning his responsibility. Look at verse 2. And he took ten, Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit ye down here, and they sat down. Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down, come sit here. And what does this one do? He comes and sits down. He gets ten more men, elders of the city, sit down here. They sit down. Since the gate was a place where legal matters would be discussed and resolved, or even court would be held for all intents and purposes, it would be reasonable to believe that the elders would be present for such an occasion. It is further believed that Boaz was an elder himself. Very possibly it's so. And it's interesting that while Ruth's redemption was a very personal matter, notice this, he calls, ho, such a one, this guy, right? Come here. (laughs) And so that guy comes, this kinsman comes, sit down, he sits down. Then he gets 10 elders of the city to come as well as witnesses of what's taking place. Now, this was a legal matter. This is a matter which had to be done in a proper, had to be executed in a proper manner, a proper legal way. And so the elders were necessary to be present for, this to, for there to be witnesses and such. But there's something very interesting about this. This whole matter was very personal within one family. What, whose family was that? Elimelech's family, right? And yet these 10 elders of the city are now called and set aside as well. And in reality, even though it's a family matter of Elimelech, the real matter at hand here is not the land. Boaz is really not interested in the land at all. Now, it's interesting, you'll find out in a moment, that this other kinsman, you know what he's interested in? The land. And he's not interested in Ruth at all. Boaz doesn't care about the land. Boaz is interested in Ruth. And so here you find a very personal it's really a very intimate matter to be resolved and dealt with here. And so you find that Boaz calls this one out and says, hey, come here. And he comes. But even though it's a very personal matter, hear me very closely, please. I've said this to you many times. It is not a private matter. You say, well, what significance does that have? Remember something. Redemption is always personal and never private. It is never something kept a secret. It's never, Boaz didn't go and redeem Ruth behind the scenes and and this other kinsman finds out, wait a minute, I could have done that. Boaz doesn't go and even talk to the other kinsman alone and say, hey, listen, I I need to talk to you about something. I plan to do this, but if you want to do this, but hey, you got Ruth to deal with. If you want to redeem the land, you got to redeem Ruth too. And and just privately deal with it and say, okay, well, if you don't want to, then I will. No, it's very personal, but public. It's public. It is not a private matter, matter, even though it's a very personal matter. 
And remember, in redemption or salvation, it's always personal, never private. God redeems men for his glory and to make his saving power and grace known throughout the world. Remember, we, we are his ambassadors. We are his witnesses. People talk about witnessing for Jesus. That, that's really a terrible, unbiblical way to state that. Jesus says to them at his time of his ascension, if you recall in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, ye shall be my witnesses. Did he not tell them that? He didn't say, go witness for me. He says, you are my witnesses. It's what you are. It's not something you do. Now, that does not mean that we as his witnesses do not proclaim the gospel. That's part of being the witness. But the point is, it's not something we pick up and do. It's that which we are. And everything about us, then, therefore, is to, to shout out this truth. Everything we do should be, if I can term it in these words, everything we, should do, everything we do should be an extension of ministry. Everything. It doesn't mean you cannot go enjoy yourself on vacation, but you know what? You can't disassociate yourself from the gospel and from the lordship of Christ when you're on vacation. Think about what I'm saying to you. But yet, how many people view it this way? Oh, we go out on Tuesday nights and we... No, no, no. You are a witness. That's what Jesus said. So it's important to remember that. Verses 3 through 5. And he said unto the kinsmen, Naomi, that has come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Limelech's. And I thought that I advertised thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. Buy it, redeem it where? Before the elders. You see, it's public. Do you see that? Very personal, but very public. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. And notice it is italicized here. So really he's saying, if you will redeem, redeem. But if thou wilt not redeem, tell me that I may know. For there's, there's none to redeem it beside thee, and I, after, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Now look how he immediately, oh, I'll redeem it. Yeah, I want this land. That sounds good to me. Then said Boaz, verse 5, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. Now once the kinsmen and the elders were gathered together, Boaz then confronted the kinsmen concerning the redemption of all that pertained to Elimelech. At first, Boaz confronted this one about the land of Elimelech. Verse 3, And he said unto the kinsmen, Naomi, that has come out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. Now, it was the responsibility of the nearest kin, as we've mentioned, to redeem the land and marry the widow of his brother if the widow was within marrying age. Now, obviously, Naomi's an old woman, and this kinsman knows this, and so he can still fulfill his responsibility to Naomi to help her and Elimelech, his brother, not literal brother, but of his family. And he's able then to do so, and really, without any consequence, it's all beneficial and profitable for him. I mean, hey, I'm getting a piece of land out of this, right? I'm helping out my, my brother's widow and i'm getting land out of this deal so i'm i'm sitting pretty in the whole thing he thought it was a good idea the lord provided such law concerning redemption in the book of leviticus in leviticus 25 24 and 25 we read and in all the land of your possession you shall grant a redemption for the land if thy brother be waxen poor and hath sold away some of his possession and if any of his kin come to redeem it then shall he redeem that which his brother sold so in this case he's talking about someone being waxen poor now remember something naomi's impoverished she comes back she says lord to the lord uh, sent me, I went away empty, and the Lord brought me, or I went away full, the Lord brought me back empty. Remember she, she said that? She's, she's impoverished. She does not have possessions and wealth at this time. Boaz explained, however, to this one in verse 4. He said, he thought to advertise it to thee, saying, buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem, redeem. If thou wilt not redeem, then tell me that I may know, 
For there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. It's interesting, again, that this one, when looking at how he thought this purchase would benefit him, he was not only interested, but declared that he would redeem the land. He was committed to this. Oh, I'm going to redeem this. You know why he said he was going to redeem it? Because it was good for him. He's looking at this outwardly going, wait a minute, this is a good deal. I, I, can, I can redeem this parcel. I can gain inheritance, gain land. I can gain something, uh, broaden and, and, and increase my wealth. And he says, so yeah, I'm all in. Count me in, dude. I'm buying it. <laughs> and that's what he's saying. I'll do it. This is good. And then here Boaz throws in the midst of this great deal. Oh, but there's one more thing here. Such a one. Verse 5, then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth and Mobitis, the wife of the dead, to raise up the names of the dead, or name of the dead upon his inheritance. So this kinsman was obviously aware that Naomi was too old to marry, as I mentioned, and, and, and he could simply purchase the land with no continued responsibility, so to speak. And we will see in the following verse that this one did not want the responsibilities or consequences that were associated with this redemption to which he previously declared he was committed. Listen to what I'm saying to you, please. Here's this one. He's going, oh, I'll do it. I'll redeem it. And because he says, this is good. This is a benefit. Think about this in terms of redemption. Think about how people are so quick to go, oh, yeah, I want salvation. This sounds great to me. I'll go to heaven one day. Oh, all my problems are going to go away. Oh, God's going to give me everything I want. Sure, I want this. Is that not the attitude people have concerning redemption? That's similar to what this guy is saying. Oh, this is good. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. I went in on this deal. <clears throat> Men continually want the benefits of salvation. Think about this for a moment. No judgment, no wrath of God, the promise of heaven, God's blessings, and so on. But here's what men don't want. They don't want Christ, and they don't want salvation itself, only the benefits. In other words, men do not want to identify in the sufferings of Christ. Men do not want to lay their lives down in submission to the lordship of Christ. Men do not want to pick up their cross, and men do not want to follow after Christ, especially in his sufferings, for which he's left us an example, Peter says. Verse 6. So here's the conclusion. The kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Lest I mar my own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, whether there are differing opinions or interpretations concerning the meaning of this one regarding the marriage of his inheritance or marring of his inheritance, it is reasonable, I think, to believe that he refused to redeem Ruth due to her background and that she was a woman from Moab. Now, consider this for a moment. As I've already mentioned, the law was established that a brother was to redeem the property of his brother if he had died or if he were impoverished. And in the instance of a death, the man was also to marry the widow of his brother. However, the Jews were also commanded by law to not enter into interracial marriages or marriages with pagans really is what the matter is here specifically. Now, whether this one was intent on the letter of the law, whether that's his case, he was just intent, oh, I can't do this, it mars my, my inheritance, or just ignorant that Ruth, although from Moab, had forsaken everything to identify with Naomi, her people, and most importantly, her God. He refused to redeem Ruth due to the responsibility and consequence of such an action. He says, look, I want the land, I want to profit, I want to, I want to expand my, my investments. But, yeah, I don't, I don't want this Ruth. This is a little too much. <laughs> and he says, I can't, I can't do this. It's going to mar my inheritance. And, and I think the fact of the matter is that, that Ruth being a Moabitess 
and, and obviously they were poor and not wealthy and of no significance in terms of society. And yet this one says, I can't, yeah, I, that's not good for me. Or maybe the fact of the matter is one day everything he has gets left to a Moabitess woman. How about that? Wow, I can't, yeah, I can't do that. This is not good for me. So all of a sudden what he thought was really good is no good. Consider this for a moment. Think how people think. Oh, heaven, that's great. Oh, suffering, that's bad. <laughs> I mean, really, that's the reality of it, isn't it? Oh, oh, I want all the benefits, but none of, none, none of the responsibility or consequences. You listen to me. There is nothing like salvation and redemption. There is nothing in beauty. There is nothing in glory. There is nothing in, in confidence. There is nothing in, in hope and in peace and in the goodness of God to compare with redemption. And there is also nothing to compare to its suffering, to its selflessness, and to its dying to self. What else demands that of anyone? Well, people look and say, oh, yeah, this is great because it benefits me. They'll find out very soon it's not so great for them as they thought it was because the consequence, the price is too high. There's too much cost here involved. Verses 7 through 10. I'm not saying we won't come back to this, but let's just read it in concluding the study this evening. Now, this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. And this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore, the kinsman said unto Boaz, buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife to raise up the name of the dead from upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead may uh, be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. Let me just mention this and I'm finished. Boaz willingly did what this one would not or could not do. And Boaz was willing to identify with this woman from Moab. And notice, this is what's so beautiful about it. In the end, it was not Boaz that was marred by Ruth's identity, but it was Ruth who was transformed and now memorialized because she was identified with Boaz. Consider that for a moment. This man says, I can't, I can't, I can't redeem Ruth. I can't do it. And this is going to be bad for me. And this is going to end up bad on my inheritance. And this is going to mar my inheritance. It's going to mar my inheritance. That's, those were. But isn't it interesting that Ruth in no way marred Boaz. But Boaz sure did change Ruth. You know, as those who've been redeemed by our Lord Jesus Christ. It, it, I'm reminded of the leper, the account of the leper. I wasn't intending to bring this up. But let me mention it because it's worthy to know. I believe it's in Luke's gospel in this account specifically. But there's the account of the leper that comes to Jesus. And in this one account, here's what you find. It's very interesting. He comes wanting to be healed. Of course, no one else wants to get around him because leprosy was so contagious and deadly. It was, it was in most cases, a death sentence. Maybe not every case, but most. And it was a painful, terrible death, by the way. Horrible death. And a lonely death because you got cast aside with all the other lepers. And, and what misery is that among misery? And yet, this one leper comes to Jesus, and he's desiring to be healed. And the scripture says that Jesus had compassion on him. He reached out, and you know what he did? He touched him before he healed him. He didn't heal him. He didn't speak to him about healing. He touched him. 
And then he said he would heal him and told him to be cleansed. And he was immediately made clean. Do you know Jesus is the only person who not only could heal the leper, that's one thing, and that's wonderful in itself, but not only was he the only one who could heal the leper, he's the only one who could touch that leper and not be contaminated by the leper. Anyone and everyone else would have taken on them that leprosy. Christ redeeming us, our sin, our sinful nature, our wickedness, our ungodliness, our filth, in no way marred him. But oh, his righteousness sure does mark us, doesn't it? Let us be thankful that we have a kinsman redeemer that invaded and erupted divinely our lives dealt with this wicked sinful flesh that we cannot deal with he took care of it and the flesh says oh yeah everything good about salvation i want oh but i don't want any of that bad I, that's not redemption redemption is we are receiving christ he is redeeming us and there's nothing like knowing him let's pray father thank you again for your word